Lord, we just thank you for your goodness, your grace, all the blessings that you have blessed us with. Lord, keeping us safe and just giving us opportunities to be used by you. Guide and direct us, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay, come let the teens be dismissed to their class downstairs. And the rest of us, let's take our Bibles once again. And uh, we are going through a series on Sunday nights on how to study or how to understand the Bible. And of course, uh, there are uh, um, many different ideas when it comes to that subject, but we, we believe that God gave us his word as he intended it to be given, and we have to stick with a literal understanding of the scripture that when God is speaking about things, he, he means what he says, and he says what he means. And last week, uh, we went through uh, Hebrews chapter 6. It's a chapter that a lot of people struggle with. And again, we put the Bible into its grammatical context, word meaning, word order, in the biblical context, in the understanding of the entire Bible, in its historical context, um, and then uh, trying to keep it in the overall plan of God's revelation to man. Someone says, well, I just uh, don't believe in that, but okay, if you believe all the Bible is exactly the same, why aren't you sacrificing at the temple in Jerusalem? Well, number one, there isn't a temple there to sacrifice at, nor has there been since 70 A.D. Uh, but what we believe, uh, the simplest way to put it, is progressive revelation that God has given us parts of, of his word, his information. He certainly did not explain all about the cross of Calvary to Adam and Eve in the garden but we've seen God put things in order bit by bit and piece by piece. Now, of course, it's interesting. Everybody goes to seed when it comes to the Bible. Well, God was, was speaking in, um, in, a, in a metaphor. He really doesn't mean what he said. And so tonight we're going to spend a little time on special passages, metaphors, similes, uh, and then uh, try to get into types and foreshadowing tonight. These are things that are all through the scripture. Now, number one, the number one rule when we talk about a metaphor or a simile is it is based on the real definition of real words. If you're going to say something is like something else, how in the world can you know that it's like that if you don't use the real, literal, common understanding of what it's like? And so don't allow yourself to be drawn off into the realm of Never Never Land, uh, into this mystical, allegorical understanding of the Scripture, just because the word like or as is stuck in there. Now, let's just look at one of these, Numbers chapter 9. Numbers chapter 9. How many are you keeping up with your Bible reading schedule? 
Good, good. Numbers chapter 9, you would have just read this passage. I didn't pick it just because of that, okay? Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and I'm still heading toward Genesis. That's not going to work. Okay, Numbers chapter 9, verse 15. And on the day that the tabernacle was reared up, the cloud covered the tabernacle, namely the tent of the testimony, and at even there was upon the tabernacle, as it were, the appearance of fire unto the morning. So it was always the cloud covered it by day and the appearance of fire by na- night. Now we have this, these words here. It says there was a cloud that covered the tabernacle by day. And then it says the appearance of fire. Now, there would be a couple of problems here if actual cloud of fire stood over top of the tabernacle. One is they were in a desert place. We are talking about heat because fire produces heat. Uh, We're also talking about the flammability of the substances made out of the tabernacle and wood and and, uh, skins and all of those things. The Bible tells us that it was not fire but it was the appearance of fire. It gave light like fire did. It looked like fire did, but it wasn't fire. And you say, well, what was it? The appearance of fire is what it was. It's just that simple. Uh, And this is the... uh, The symbol of the presence of God was the cloud by day, the fire by night, all the years that they wandered in the wilderness. If God wanted them to move, he took the cloud up off the tabernacle and they followed the cloud. If God wanted them to stay, the cloud just stood there and at night it was the same way. It was just simply the appearance of fire. Now, God does a lot with fire in the scripture, and probably one of the most confusing passages, how many of you have ever tried to deal with someone uh, from a charismatic or Pentecostal background? And uh, they have all kinds of interesting things, and one of the things I like to do is as we are looking at this idea of metaphor and simile, is I like to take them to Acts chapter 2. That's where they always want to go. And the first question is, now before, before we go there, what filled the room in which the disciples were sitting on the day of Pentecost? Did a mighty rushing wind fill the room? How many believe that? Well, let's look at what Scripture says. Verse 1, and the day of Pentecost was fully come, and they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a what from heaven? Anybody got their Bibles open? A sound. It was not a mighty rushing wind that filled the room. It was the sound of a mighty rushing wind. Now, if you want to catch somebody off guard, 
just ask him that because almost every Pentecostal charismatic preacher preaches that the room was filled with a mighty rushing wind and that that was the symbol of the Holy Ghost entering the room. And I'm simply saying you're being careless with the scripture because it was not a mighty rushing wind that filled the room. It was a sound. And if, you're go- if your preacher is careless with the words of God in a simple passage like this, he's going to be just as careless with other words of God that are absolutely important to your salvation and well-being. We must be careful with the words of God. Now, we're going to look at how many believe that the tongues were made out of fire. Of course, I'm asking that question. You know better than to raise your hand. If you read ahead, let's read what it says. Verse 3. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire. And it sat upon each of them. Were the tongues made out of fire? No. They were like as of fire. You say, well, why is that so important? Turn with me to Matthew chapter 3. And I promise you one, one of our times together here, we will take all of the rules once we've set them down and we will apply them to Bible doctrines. We'll go through the doctrine of baptism. We'll talk about baptism of the Holy Ghost and what it is, what it isn't. And uh, we'll talk about uh, the Lord's Supper and why our church partakes of it in that way. We'll go through uh, possibly even some other doctrines like the second coming of the Lord and different things like that. And just apply the rules that we are establishing right now. You say, but pastor, I can't remember all the rules. I mean, it's grammatical context and it's historical context and it's uh, a biblical context and it's uh, uh, the pattern of revelation and all of this. Well, just a moment. How many of you read the newspaper or news articles? Uh, do you... Uh, If you read those things, um, do you look up the words in the dictionary you don't understand if they use them? And if you have a Kindle or something like that, you just tap on the button and there comes the word. If, If I'm reading something and I don't understand a word, let me tell you something. I'm going to stop and look up the word because I want to know what the guy's talking about, right? These are not complicated rules that we're giving you. It is really, in essence, a common sense approach to understanding any written document. And if you're going to read anything and understand what it says. uh, I've often given this example, and I'll just give it one more time. My my dad was a machinist. And uh, he worked at Black & Decker Tool & Dye Company. He was in charge... He was not in charge. He was the setup man is what they call him. In department one, that was the machine shop. That meant he had to know every different type of machine they had in this shop and how to make them work. He had a stack of manuals as high as this thing off, uh, is off the floor in his bedroom And each one had a different machine and the specifications and how it worked. 
And uh, he, his main machine was a lathe that turns metal. And uh, you can make all kinds of things out of that. But he ran some very complex machines. And this was before the computers did all the work for you. So when you were given a part, you had to measure it with a micrometer and a, and a caliper. And then you had to go to the machine and make the adjustments. And he said that normally he was working with tolerances of between two and three thousandths of an inch. This paper is almost seven thousandths of an inch thick. And so here he is milling metal. But see, the reason I, I tell you that is someone told my dad, now, Pete, you're from Pennsylvania, and I know you didn't do very good in school. You're not really a smart guy, so you won't be able to understand your Bible. And my dad believed him. And they gave him one of those imitation Bibles and said, here, this is easier to understand. And every time I think about that, I'd like to find that guy and have a little conversation with him. Because my dad went through his life believing that he wasn't smart enough to understand his Bible. I'm telling you, if he could understand those shop manuals, he could understand this book. If someone would have just sat him down and said, get a good dictionary. Pay attention to the words. If you don't understand sentence structure, just look where the action is going. Look to whom the verbs are directed. And just simply spend some time reading and studying the Word of God. Amen? Now, the reason why we're in Acts chapter 2 here is because people like to go to Matthew chapter 3. John is explaining baptism. And as John explains baptism, he says, verse 11, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. And so the typical charismatic Pentecostal understanding of Acts chapter 2 was the mighty rushing wind filled the room, the presence of the Holy Spirit, and the tongues of fire. This was the baptism of the Holy Ghost, the wind, and the cloven tongues of fire, the baptism of fire. Now, is that what happened in Acts chapter 2? Yes, Acts chapter 2 is talking about the baptism of the Holy Ghost, for sure. But look at Matthew chapter 3. Again, let's let the Bible explain the Bible. And Jesus is again going to use simile and metaphor here. In verse 12, he says, Whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner. I'm sorry. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Now, this is something that every person Jesus, John the Baptist was speaking to would have clearly understood. 
Now, unless, more than likely, unless you've been where I've preached on this subject, you have no idea what his fan is in his hand and thoroughly purging the floor has anything to do with. But it was the ancient harvesting process. They would take the wheat or the grain, they would put it on the threshing floor, they would use rakes or oxen or different animals, different means to uh, separate the grain from the chaff. Now you have the grain and the chaff all mixed together. Now threshing floor could, could be a small place, uh, maybe 10, 12 feet across. It might be a large threshing floor the size of our auditorium. I mean, it, it was an area where threshing was done. Now, how much wheat do you have to have to get a 10-pound sack of flour? And how far does a 10-pound sack of flour go in feeding your family? My family? Not very far. A couple of... Uh, 10 pounds will give us a couple of batches of biscuits for everybody or maybe a pie or a couple of pies or something like that. But I mean, a 10 pounds of flour go pretty quick. What if you had to grind enough wheat to feed your family for a year? Let me tell you, that threshing floor would be an important place for you. And as that uh, mixture of the grain and the chaff was lying there on the floor you had to purge or clean the threshing floor. So you would get the fan. And you would wave the fan. You would have fanners waving the fan. You would then throw the mixture up into the air. The chaff being weightless would be blown to the end of the threshing floor. The grain being heavier would be gathered in the middle. And when you were done, you would have a nice pile of wheat in the center of the floor and a pile of chaff at the far end. You would take the wheat, put it in your garner, the storage bin. Baptism of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Right? This is the metaphor that's being used, right? So, the threshing process, we've got the wheat here, it is gathered, it is protected so that none of the crop is lost. And then we have the chaff at the end of the floor. You can't use it for anything. It's worthless. You, if you leave it there, the rats will get into it. Sometimes it would spontaneously combust and, and set the farm on fire. You had to get rid of the chaff, and so they would burn it. But Jesus uses a phrase here. I mean, John uses a phrase here. He uses a phrase, unquenchable fire. Every place in the Bible you see unquenchable fire, it's talking about hellfire. Or, where could you be baptized in fire? How about the lake of fire? Now, if you're taking the fire, the baptism of fire out of here and equivocating it to the tongues like as of fire... In Acts chapter 2, you have got some very serious theological problems here now, do you not? Uh, you are confusing salvation and damnation, both of which are eternal in scope, with the sign of the power of God upon the life of the believer. 
Now you talk about confusion. That's why we have to go to the literal meaning of what it is being compared to. The chaff was worthless. The baptism of fire is for those souls that have no value in the sight of God because they've rejected his grace. Every soul is valuable because Jesus died for every one. But when you've rejected God's grace, you are not the harvest. You are the refuse. And God has no choice but to remove you from the threshing floor. You have no part in the harvest, no part in the joys that are associated with it. This solves a lot of problems. Well, well, what did those cloven tongues like a fire represent? Well, what happened? The tongues were divided. That's what the word cloven means. What happened on the day of Pentecost? They spoke in other languages. That's all the symbolism of the cloven tongues was, that God was giving these disciples the ability to speak in other languages. I've had people over the years saying, well, was the miracle really in the speaking or was it in the hearing? Well, the Bible is very clear. It was in the speaking, that the speaking was coming from the disciples because of the work of God in their lives. So as we go through here, a proper understanding of that passage. Remember when I was a Bible college student, I worked in the Assembly of God Retirement Center in their nursing home. And uh, one of the ladies I was working with, I said, ask your husband about this. I said, if the Bible tongues were real languages, what right does the tongue-speaking movement have to exist? So she went home and asked her husband, who was a student at the Assembly of God Seminary, and came back and says, well, my husband says, yeah, that, that would be a valid point, but we don't believe that. <laughs> okay, well, now you have your out, but... The simple truth is, it was definitely talking about languages, was it not? And so, our understanding is always based on the literal meaning of the words, even when we're in similes and metaphors, because if we're not applying this or comparing these things to a literal understanding of what is going on, we have no basis to understand what we're comparing and our understanding just becomes whatever our own mind and heart desires. And if you want to know why there's so many different religions in the world, that's the answer right there. Is people have chosen to understand the scripture as their heart and their mind desires. We don't want to do that here. We want the scripture to demand from us the understanding that God gave it. 
That way we have an authoritative word to base the changes that God wants to make in our lives and in our behavior upon. Can we have a good amen to that? The number one key to understanding metaphors, similes, and as we get into types and foreshadowing in the scripture, is that our understanding should give us a more complete picture of simple Bible doctrine. It should give us a fuller understanding of what has been stated in the scripture. If the picture and what it's picturing does not agree, then we got a problem. I knew a guy, he was a really funny preacher. He's still alive, I think. He had a picture of his family made. And he would say, how do you like my family? And he'd hold up the picture of his family. And then he would flip it over. And there was a picture glued on the back of it with the whole family facing the other direction. And you're sitting there going, where, where did that come from? And he also carried a picture, you may have seen it, of what has been known as the world's ugliest woman. It's the picture with the woman sucking in her teeth, no teeth, and she has her whole face sucked in her mouth. Has anybody ever seen that? I mean, it's, it's everywhere. And he'll pull that out and said, here's a picture of my mother. And you'd look at it and you'd snicker a little bit and then he'd lay into you. He said, that's my mother. You're laughing. And he just, oh, he was mean when it came to that kind of stuff. But the whole simple truth was, that wasn't a picture of his mother. And that's what people do with the scriptures. It's good for a joke, but when you're dealing with your soul, you better not be joking, my friend. You better make sure the picture matches the object the picture was taken of. Now, it'd be really nice if you took a picture of you and it transformed you into what you thought you ought to look like rather than what you do. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Mirror, mirror on the wall. It might work for Cinderella or whatever. Oh, no, that was Snow White, wasn't it? I, I don't remember my children's stories very well. But when preachers get up in the pulpit and start preaching those kind of sermons, souls are in the balance. And that's why you have to be careful. Uh, I remember having a conversation just the other day and a preacher said, was asking the question, whose job is it to keep the church straight? And of course, the answer he wanted was, it's the preacher's job. Well, that's true. But it's not the preacher's job alone. It's the duty of each and every member to be able to understand the word of God so that we can work together to keep the church straight. I've known too many churches, great preacher, 
great church. He retires, goes off the scene, and some rascal gets in. And it isn't long before there's a drum set on the platform and they're putting their King James Bibles in the storeroom and they're doing all kinds of stuff that if you would have told them five years before that this would happen in their church, they got in a fist fight with you. Let me tell you, it's because the members of the church weren't doing their job. That's why we're spending our time right now. You must study the word of God. When it comes to these metaphors and similes, you are bound to the reality to which the picture is compared. And our number one goal is to get a more complete understanding of the literal words of the Scripture. If you don't get that, then don't waste your time with it. There's a preacher I often use this example, wrote an entire book on how Adam and Eve got their blood by eating grapes. Now listen, I, I can't argue the point. I'm not going to read the book. But what I am saying is, what difference does that make in how I live today? What question of tomorrow in serving God is that going to answer if Adam and Eve had water in their veins when they were created and got blood by eating the tree of the fruit the fruit of the tree of knowledge of the good and evil, which was a grape tree? Now that's the basic surmisal of the preacher. Does that change anything? Does that help you live for God in a better and more complete way? Absolutely not. That's why we don't waste time with that kind of interpretation or understanding of the Scripture. You know what? We might get to heaven, and I might have to walk up and say, Hey, you were right! But I'm still going to ask the question, what difference did it make? A lot of people go to seed in prophecy on the same thing. They have the Antichrist all figured out. They know who he is. The only problem is, it's not right. We don't know who he is. We're not to waste our time trying to figure out who he is. We're to serve God today. We are to prepare for the coming of the Lord. Now, this is metaphors. And I've got a whole double the information on types and foreshadows. I'm just dying to get into it. But if I do, I'm only going to half cover it. And I don't want to do that. And so with your permission, with your kind permission, I'm going to recommend that uh, we start our prayer time just a little early tonight. Would that be okay? And uh, there are many other similes and metaphors we could go through in the Scripture don't worry, it's not that much early. But um, number one, you got to stick to the text. Number two, you got to make sure that you understand what it's being compared to. If you did not understand the old the first century threshing methods, would you have any idea? Whose fan is in his hand? 
Now, I mean, think about that in modern context. That could mean an awful lot of things. And he will thoroughly purge the floor and gather the wheat into the garner and burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. I mean, it just just becomes nonsensical. But we take the words, what they mean, we put them in their historical setting, and all of a sudden we have a beautiful illustration of simple Bible truth. Jesus gives salvation. He's going to gather the wheat into the garner. Jesus gives damnation. He's going to burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. He is going to baptize with the Holy Spirit of God, eternal salvation. He is going to baptize with fire in the lake of fire, eternal damnation. We have a complete picture that we can start with here. And no, we do not build Bible doctrine on this. We go to all the other passages in the Bible to get our doctrine. But what we find is agreement all the way through from Genesis to Revelation. God is the giver of salvation. Genesis 1 to Revelation chapter 22. You can't get any further than that. Who is the final and ultimate judge? Uh, same person. I've heard sermons on how that Jesus took the keys to death and hell from the devil. Let me tell you, he's never had those keys and never will. They don't belong to him. Jesus has always had the keys. There are people who have looked at this passage and ignored the plain teaching here and said that Jesus paid the debt of our sin to the devil. I don't know anything more blasphemous to Scripture than that. It wasn't his law that was broken. It was God's law. It is Jesus that is the ultimate judge. And I could keep going, but I'm going to eat up all of our few minutes extra here. But, I mean, we... This is so important that without this understanding, you will become prey to all of the charlatans and goofballs and kookamongas and whatever other adjective you want to call them out there. You've got to spend some time in the Word of God. You've got to chain yourself to the words but not, as some do, in such a mechanical and dead way that they destroy the message of the words. But not others who take so much freedom with the words that they no longer mean what they say. We've got to keep ourselves in the word. That's our goal. All God's people said... Let's take a moment and just pray, and uh, then we'll get into our prayer time.